0: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show where we like to get our hands dirty, envisioning a cleaner future. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. And during this holiday season, as we spend our time huddled around the virtual or electric fireplace, can you hear the crackling of the virtual fireplace in the background? This is a time for us to spend time with family members, right? And some of those family members are chosen family, the people we hold and love very dear who've come into our lives at different times in our journey on this planet, and we commune with them and rebond with them. We also have those that the universe has assigned to us, and we also bond with them as well during this time of year. And we wanted to take this moment to introduce you to two women who are like sisters from another mister to me. They're my chosen family and it's the dynamic duo behind the podcast Trash Magic. But first, we want to thank Resource Labs for having us on their network, and a heartfelt thanks to all of you Earthlings who tune in every week. Thank you for your support. If you're enjoying the content, please consider giving us a gift this season of a review. You don't even have to write any words. Just give us some stars. That's going to help us get the word out to more people such as yourself and spread the word of our the knowledge that these incredible guests have to share. And now, a moment from the Resource Labs network. Today, we're excited to dive into the wonders of Trash Magic, a podcast hosted by the dynamic duo of Sarah Eve Fuentes and Oakley Jennings Fast. I met them through the sisterhood of women in clean tech and sustainability. And What I love about Trash Magic is that it shines a spotlight on this hidden value of what we discard, and their episodes are this lovely blend of education and entertainment, and they really unravel the complexities behind the circular economy, like recycling and waste management and, you know, plastic pollution and, like, what the heck do I do with this? So for me, it's like the view for the circular economy. We're doing a swap with Trash Magic this week, and the episode we picked for you is one that covers transparent labeling and its importance in helping consumers make more informed decisions, as well as holding product manufacturers accountable. If you enjoy this episode, please head over to their feeds, give them a follow, and download some episodes to hear more trash talk. Now, without further ado, here's Trash Magic's episode with Heidi Sanborn, She's the executive director of the Stewardship Action Foundation and board member of the California Foundation for the Environment and Economy. Do you wish plastic pollution would magically disappear? Wave your wand and everyone is buying secondhand? Alakazam! And recycling is demystified. We do. Your hosts, Oakley J Fast, a chemical engineer, and Sarah Fuentes, a waste and recycling expert, are here to demystify the circular economy. Welcome to Trash Magic.
1: I am thrilled by this guest today. She is making some incredible real progress in the circular economy. The circular economy is becoming real and tangible. Thanks to you, Heidi, today, which is amazing. So Heidi is the founding director of both the California Product Stewardship Council and the National Stewardship Action Council. These are two leading organizations that advocate for an equitable circular economy. With over 32 years of experience, Heidi is the nation's foremost expert on extended producer responsibility, EPR. We're gonna talk more about that later and circular economy policy. She advocates for making the producers have a fair share of the responsibility for the end of life impacts and costs of their products. Her efforts pushed the California legislature to historical EPR legislation, which includes responsible end-of-life of of paint, mercury, thermostats, pharmaceuticals, sharps, packaging. This is more legislation on this topic than in any other state. She is not only an expert in policy, but in program implementation and regularly keynotes at national and international conferences. Wow. You are my role model, my inspiration. It is so cool to see all of these ideas coming to life, for real. So thank you
2: and welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. And it's great to be here. Excellent.
1: So let's dive into the topic that I am most curious about, which is extended producer responsibility. Heidi, you're known as the translator for tricky topics. So can you explain to our
2: audience what EPR is? It's really exactly what it says, extending producers responsibility from beyond just selling a product onto the market to actually being responsible for its full life cycle and returning it back into the economy as a new product. So that's a very different thing than just pushing it out there, selling it, wiping your hands of all the responsibilities and the externalized costs onto the environment and the public sector to clean up the mess of the products and waste. So that's why we really promote this as a way, an economic messaging system back to the producers, that if they have to take back what they have put on the market and actually deal with it like the rest of us have had to for 120 Mm -hmm. years, that they really rethink design. They rethink the chemicals they use, the material choices, make things more durable, more repairable, because now they have an economic reason to do that. They have no economic reason to make them more durable when they don't pay those costs, because the more you buy, the more they make. Mm. So this literally is riding the ship on a free market economy, because when you have a free market economy, you have competition, but you also have whole cost accounting. So the customer can see the full life cycle costs of the product at purchase. They cannot do that now. Everything's buried in the back end, in their garbage rates, their taxes, and they cannot figure out what it's costing, for example, to recycle a mercury fluorescent light, those mercury lights cost sometimes double to recycle the price that it was to buy. How would someone know that when it's not in the product price? They don't. Right.
1: And there are very few products that we can think of that have this right now, more universally like paint. I know at least in Colorado, we pay a little bit extra when we buy paint for it to then be able to be recycled. So that's just one example, right? But there are so many products out there. And as we know, listeners of this podcast and just people who are educated in general know that recycling and end of life of materials, that guilt has been placed on the consumer for so long. And as you're touching on with no responsibility from the producer and and no financial incentive either, so right. that's what you're trying to change.
2: That's right. Um, I people have yeah. said to me, well, uh, and businesses have said to me, well, what you're promoting is socialism. I said, well, let's let's go over the definitions of socialism, and also of you know defining what a free market economy is, mm-hmm. because conservative economists say, if you want to reduce pollution without regulation, make the polluters pay, because that feedback loop is the only thing businesses are set up to respond to. Mm. They do not have to care about people and planet. The way we set up our economic system, which I disagree with, is to say that literally all they care about is money and shareholders getting money. They don't care about people and planet. The only ones who do are those that are B Corps, certified B corporations, and that's a whole different conversation. So if they don't care about people and planet and they make more money by externalizing costs, it's exactly what they're going to do. That's their actual responsibility. And so we have to change how the money works in order for a free market to exist. Because again, consumers cannot make educated choices when they're lied to on the labels and the price of the product is not inclusive of the end of life costs. So then you've got socialism where The back end is socializing all the costs amongst all the people who pay for waste management. They might pay by the size of their can, but it's not by product that they chose to purchase. So, for example, I should not have to pay the outrageous costs of household hazardous waste collection for all of my neighbors who buy pesticides when I don't buy them. Mm -hmm. Why do I have to pay part of that cost? That's not fair. And that's not democratic and it's not free market. So
1: right now, the hazardous waste disposal is being paid through taxes, or, or how, what is that structure like right now?
2: It depends on where you live. In California, mostly, it is garbage rates. And the costs, I'm doing a study right now that is going to be released soon in public, so I can't speak too much to it except to tell you that at least in one large community, we have only less than 2% of the households participating. The costs are up to the hundreds of dollars a gallon. The cost between even the three haulers that collect this stuff is literally hundreds of dollars spread per drum. There's literally no accountability. It is, And there's no metric that we can find that is actually being hit. Convenience, cost effectiveness. Who would set up a program that costs millions of dollars and gets 2%? And these Mm -hmm. are the most toxic products. These are the things that people will throw in the trash when they cannot spend an hour and a half of their life in line waiting for a one, you know, two day a month event to come to their neighborhood burning gasoline. I mean, environmentally, and I'm not sure it's that much better. And, and so they throw things in the trash and then our workers are exposed to these things. Yeah, exactly. Whether at the landfill or at the recycling center, if they throw it in the recycling bin. So we've got a lot of work to do up and down the entire waste uh, system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the National Stewardship Action Council is really doing, correct? And I've seen so many bills that you've been a part of. And EPR, of course, is landmark legislation. Do you want to speak more a little bit about EPR bills or or maybe another bill that you're proud of that you've worked yeah,
2: on? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's knowing how to write a good EPR bill, there's a lot of what I call devil in the details. The concept is one thing, but when you actually get down to putting pen to paper and getting literally every word correct to make sure that you have, and fundamentally APR, you've got the government setting performance standards, ensuring accountability, transparency, and enforcing so that all producers have to pay into the system and you don't have what we call free riders. That's the government's job. The producer's job is to hit those performance targets, design a plan that will work. Utilize the best of their their reverse logistics system to get their products back most cost mm-hmm. effectively, and then they to redesign their product so that it's more environmentally preferable. It can be recycled. It can be repaired. Um, it can be refilled. Even imagine that going back to refill. So, <laughs> and that that is really how it's supposed to work. And the best bill that we passed and probably the 2010s was SB212, the one I fought literally for six over probably eight years for, oh. which was the EPR for medicines and needles. And the reason I fought so very hard for that was it was the first time I had seen an opportunity to make the case, not just for the environment, but for public health and safety. Mm-hmm. And that put it on the radar of a much broader group of stakeholders that made it much easier to plead the case when we were watching opioid addiction take off. They were then turning to heroin. Then needles were being left all over. The public was becoming outraged. They also realized people were flushing their medicines and the Mm -hmm. FDA was telling them to do that. And Yes, I actually had (laughs) petition letters with 140 water districts from across the country begging them to stop because water treatment plants were never, ever designed to remove every chemical component of pharmaceuticals, which are bioreactive at very, very low dosages. So we we argued all those points and it got, literally, we, we couldn't get it done at the state level Industry fought very, very hard. So we decided we'll have to do this one county at a time. So oh, we're going to, we can't outrun them with money. We're going to outstrategize them. So we, we started taking on one county at a time. It started with Alameda. They passed the first pharmaceutical take back ordinance. Pharma chart challenged them. It went all the way through the Ninth Circuit up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we won. And they claimed, oh, wow. I saw national NPR talking about this, and they their at- attorney said, well, You know, the poor people of Tennessee shouldn't have to pay for the fancy pill program of Alameda. They determined they thought it was a violation of the interstate commerce clause and it wasn't. So there you have it. So we actually paved the rules of the road legally so that every single local government in this country had the authority to take action against producers and make them pay for end of life of their product. If we could make that health and safety nexus. And I used to think that was a much narrower list. It was mostly just hazardous waste. But because of the latest science on microplastics, the chemicals in these plastics, they're in our bodies, they're in placentas, they're in our brain. We, I believe, can very strongly make the case that plastics also fit into this category and other things. So I think we have... and, And the reason I like to go local when I can't get the state or the national, the most lobbying and the most influence companies have is really at the national level. Lesser so at state, because not every state hosts an industry. But they have the least influence on local governments because local governments are so very close to their constituents. They're their neighbors. They're rattling their cage all the time. So, and you don't often have those industries in that county. Although Alameda did have Bayer and some others that did, You know have concerns of course but it passed bear didn't leave alameda county which was apparently something that was suggested and other things so we went through that and then did 12 other ordinances over years to drive industry to the table and the last county to go Mm -hmm. was going to be los angeles we had six hearings at the county supervisors before they agreed to negotiate at the state level. And now the producers have rolled out medicines and needle take back statewide in California. And I even got into the bill that if their mailback program didn't work on needles, because I wanted drop-off bins, mm-hmm. that they'd have to reimburse local governments for any needle that showed up in an HHW facility, because that means that their program was failing. And the first check I just saw from Contra Costa County was that they got a $32,000 check from the Med Project for just one- half of a year just for needles. So you can imagine how much money that is saving across the state that can be used for everything else. Other household hazardous waste, other, you know, composting, but why should, why should everybody be paying for this? It's not fair. Yeah. We don't want them laying all around either.
1: (laughs) No, of course not. And, and, you know, I really think that no matter who you are, you care about, your own health and your children's health and your family's health. And that includes clean air and clean water. I have a question for you that just came up for me. I've been passionate about circular economy for my whole life, but now it's my career. And I try to imagine a better world really often, very often. I'm driving in my car, imagining a better world. You're making a better world. How did it shift from an idea to you to reality? And how have you made this more of a reality?
2: Great question. So I'm probably one of the most willful people you'll ever meet. I was raised by scientists, both my parents. My mother's a biologist. My father's a chemist. And truth and facts and science were always very important in my household, as was integrity and doing the right thing for the greater good. So I have always had a passion for fairness, truth, democracy, and doing what is right for everyone. And when I saw how this wasn't working, and my planet is being destroyed, which I'm passionate about, and we're losing two thirds of the birds of North America since I was born, we might lose the monarch in my lifetime. My mother adored them. I adore them. We have basically every environmental ecosystem in a free fall right now. Yet the planet, people are just, you know, procreate. We have what, 8 billion people on planet Earth. We had three and a half when I was born. This is completely unsustainable. And yet we're actively destroying what nature, nature's carbon sequestration system, nature's system and biodiversity. We have wildlife killing events for fun. What have we become? We Mm -hmm. do not understand. We are part of the whole of this planet Mm -hmm. and we are dangerously close to a tipping point. So when I realized all of this and my dad said to me, Heidi, you're the translator. You need to go out and tell the story of scientists and make it into good policy and make the people in power understand how to fix it. And that has been my passion. And when I realized I had that in me and I was able to communicate I'll tell you a little bit of a personal story as part of this. I was terrified to speak in public. Absolutely terrified. I had to work very, very hard to get over it. I will tell anybody out there, do not let fear get in your way. If you have a passion, if you have something you know you can do, some gift, do not let fear get in your way. Feel the fear, do it anyway, and eventually it becomes easier and easier and easier. Now I love it. But that's to say that everybody has gifts. Everybody has something they can do to help. And a lot of people don't lean in and own it and hold their ground. And I've noticed too that our society, and especially different cultures as well, are more hesitant to lean in. But the way I look at it, I am fighting for the future of this planet and there it's a take no prisoner situation. We cannot lose this war. Mm-hmm. So I just I do ourselves it really. And right. so, so we're out of time, we've got to move, I'm going to go and basically it's, it's help me or get out of the way. And if I'm trying to save the planet, and you're getting in the way, then we're going to have a conversation. And it's going to be very honest, and it might be a little painful, because I'm trying to literally make sure the next generation is not suffering with the way I think they're going to, because of the horrible decisions that we're making today. So that's, that's where I come from, and I just decide when people – when I don't see it happening the right way, like I was in government and I could tell there was not a good advocate out there for this. I just decided I'm forming a nonprofit with local governments who care about this stuff, and we're all going to work together, and that's what we did. And look at – we've moved mountains. We've changed the course of waste management in the United States because California's 40 million people. We're the largest market. We're now the fourth largest economy of the world. When we move, it matters, and that's why I'm here. Mm. So, And I will continue to bird dog bills and make sure they're right and they're high bar because we we don't have any time to waste. So that's where I come from. But I I would urge everybody, if you feel like you have a gift and a passion, don't let any fear get in your way. Just get out there and do it. And it it works. Uh, If you have a will, there's a way. This
1: is awesome.
2: <laughs> but with EPR, I I would love our
1: audience to hear a little bit more about how it will work. So what will companies pay? Where? What will that money be used for? And then as a consumer, how will disposal look different? So from both the producer and the consumer, what will EPR look like?
2: From the producer's side, again, it's devil in the details of how the bills are written. But my belief in how it should work is that producers earn the right to run the program only when they're paying internalized cost of doing business. So meaning the producers form a nonprofit, they assign costs to each other based on the volume they sell into the market, the environmental impacts of that product. So, for example, if one company's designing a more durable product that will only come back every 10 years instead of every five they have a lesser fee associated with that because that's an envir- eco-design element. And then they they contract to run the program. So they set it up. They figure out how we're going to get the stuff back. How is it going to be recycled and repurposed, refilled, whatever it is. And they contract with operators like Waste Management, Republic, to up- move the stuff around and then also to get it to the right recyclers and get contracts and so forth. For the the consumer, it really depends on the product. There are some products that are just so dangerous and hazardous. For example, marine flares. I think it's a a product that should not even be sold. They are highly, highly dangerous. They burn at 1400 degrees. They're full of perchlorate, which is very, very polluting. They're explosive. They burn boats, but they're required to be on every boat in America for three years. And then at the end of the three years, what do you do with them? There is no end-of-life plan at all. So what are people doing? They can't bring them to a hazardous waste facility. They can't bring them to Coast Guard, although people have tried. So they chuck them into the water and they're doing this all over the country and that pollutes terribly. So now there's a reusable um, battery marine flare, a signal that has been approved. So we're very happy about that. But those are the kinds of things where you couldn't return it to a store. Where you bought it at west marine you can't take it back there so that particular product to me you created something with you know 1800s technology that's that dangerous and polluting you take it back and figure it out and if nobody can then we aren't using those anymore so it depends on the product there's consumable products things like medicines that are consumable they're just supposed to be gone even though some you don't take because maybe you didn't want that many or whatever but there's not; they're not planned to be left over. Same with paint; it's supposed to be used, but people have leftover. So what do you do with it? That's a different issue than things that we know are coming back. Carpets right. definitely coming back, and electronics. So we have consumables and non-consumables, and we have to set do different systems, and they all have different requirements. So the law, in, in fact, is very, very problematic for hazardous waste. They seem to have no problem selling it everywhere to anyone who can't even read how toxic they are. Some of them literally don't read English, so they can't even understand how dangerous these things are, how to apply them correctly. And then, but everybody can buy it. But when you go to return it, you can't return it to a store open because of the hazardous waste rules. You can't even transport them sometimes. So we have so many rules we've got to get out of the way. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, who do I think should be picking, figuring all this out? whoever made it sold it and profited from it because mm-hmm. they're the only ones that can change design. They're the only ones that make the money from it. The rest mm-hmm. of us are picking up all these end of life costs and that's, what's killing us on taxes and garbage. Yeah. Rates.
1: I really think that designing for end of life is such an excellent idea. And, you know, my career started in chemical engineering. Yeah. (laughs) I'm smart. I'm the baddie. Um, No, but I'm really hoping that, you know, starting in chemical engineering and then going into sustainability, that I'll be able to combine the two. And one day maybe help, help producers make Absolutely. better decisions. So, and for, for the consumers, the EPR will look like maybe returning it back to the store that they got, or, you know, just making mail back, it it makes sense. Mail back, et cetera. Great. Or well, like with medicines,
2: little... they drop them off at the pharmacy or at the hospital or at a police station. Those are the only places that can take controlled substances back in a bin. So there's lots of different ways to get stuff back. Depots in Canada, I just got back from a study trip with legislators. I took them on the fifth annual recycling challenge study trip. And we showed them how they do depots there, where it's literally like drop off all the bottles and cans. And then over here, it's electronics. And then over here, it's your fluorescent light bulbs and your batteries. So there's lots of different ways that producers can figure out how to get it back most cost effectively and conveniently. And it should always be free because otherwise it ends up being illegally dumped. But whatever it is, we always, always, always want free to the consumer end of life and convenient with a public education program that is effective. So they well over 80% of the public (laughs) knows how to do it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I agree on those three points. So clear.
1: Excellent. Well, Heidi, I could talk Talk to to you forever, but we have two final questions that we ask every guest. The first of which is, what is your experience with Trash
2: Magic? I I think for me, it's the magic of giving me a career I love, and my hope is that there won't be a need for me <laughs> someday, that this will all have a home. Everything will be designed with end of life in mind, and and there will be no need for trash anymore or trash talk. So uh, that is my dream, but for me, it's, it's a passion. I've been picking up litter in parks since I was six years old. I've never liked waste. I've always seen it as an abuse of Mother Earth. And if you've ever been to a landfill and seen, you know, how they've I've literally watched them start to build them and just watching the animals scatter as they're bulldozing and realizing how much habitat is being lost. And then we just destroy the earth by just throwing things in there that earth can't do anything and lining with plastic and methane comes out. You know, it's just this is not working and we have to fix it. It's just not fair to leave this mess for the next generation. So well said,
1: perfectly said, agreed. And it shows It shows the injustices, like people, people find waste so easy to ignore, but it's actually showing us the reality of our, our choices and our actions. Yeah, I, wow, you even made me think of it different trash differently just now. Um, Our last question is, what is your one call to action? If an audience member could do one thing from this episode, what would it be?
2: Honestly, we are really underfunded to do what we do. In fact, you and I were just talking about how stressed I am for time. I would love to be able to bring on more people and do more of this good work, but we're constantly fighting for for dollars. So if you believe in what we're doing, please join us. You can join either the nonprofit, the C3, which is uh, tax deductible, or the C4, where we do the advocacy work. But every $150 membership matters a lot to us. And we send out weekly news no- e-newsletters. We give you advocacy updates. Follow us on social media. If you don't have the money, just go ahead and follow us on social media and share our posts. We're on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. And, and just help us get the word out. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on all around the country that we need help advocating for. And we need to build an army that responds quickly when we put out calls to action, because they really do work. They estimate for every person who writes or has a comment, there's at least 100 out there that think the same way. So everybody Mm -hmm. just think of yourself as 100 people, because that's how we look at it.
1: Oh, I love that. That's really cool. That is really cool. Well, Heidi, it has been such a pleasure. You are so inspiring to me. And I know we'll talk again soon. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find us on Instagram at TrashMagic underscore podcast. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, SmartWaste. SMART stands for Save Money and Reduce Trash. Our values are people, circularity, and transparency. We can help you save money while reducing your landfill waste. Find us at SmartWasteUSA.com. See you next week. Hey, listeners. This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.